Sidekick Austin. And today, we're going to dive right into our story. It's rock and roll. It begins on May 24th of 2019 in New Canaan, Connecticut. Jennifer Dulos, a 50-year-old mom of five, dropped her kids off at school in the morning and then simply vanished. New Canaan was a super safe town, so local mom groups were terrified that this was just a random act and that it could have happened to any one of them. But once investigators started peeling back the layers of her contentious marriage, the reality became clear that this was not a random disappearance at all. Targeted. So Jennifer Dulos was born Jennifer Farber on September 27th of 1968 to parents Gloria Ortenberg and Hilliard Farber. She was born in New York City and has an older sister, Melissa Farber. Her dad was a banker and actually became the youngest vice president of Chase Manhattan Bank. Oh, dang. Yeah. Self-made millionaire. Big time. Balling up in Connecticut. Yes. And well, it's like in New a York Jordan City. Belfort this, style. This was in New York City. But I say Jordan Belfort, Belfort like he's a criminal. Anyway, so her mom was a philanthropist. And get this her aunt in law, Elizabeth Claiborne, along with her husband, Arthur Ortenberg, which would have been Jennifer's mom's brother. So Jennifer's uncle married Elizabeth. Okay. Stay mm-hmm. with me. Um, anyway, they were the founders of the fashion company Liz Claiborne. Oh, dang. Which is Real worth balling. over $2 billion. I was just going to say way more balling than the Chase president. I mean, yeah, both are pretty big time. The Ch- So Chase Bank, this is like a local bank or this is like the Chase Bank? The Chase Bank. The Chase Bank. The Like the Chase bank. card in my wallet, this is the guy. Yeah, at the time, yeah. Holy Toledo. So Jennifer grew up in Brooklyn Heights. She was tall, lean, gorgeous. She had brown eyes, brown hair, and a perfect smile. She resembled, I was trying to think of who she resembled, because she's a very classic beauty. So she's very Cindy Crawford or Giselle Bunchen, or Bunchen, however you say her name. But she's just got that, like, grace, classic beauty, right? So if you can imagine that. But for all of her outward appearance of grace, she was actually very physically and socially awkward, which really only added to her charm. She was incredibly insightful and intellectual. Her family said, quote, her default position is one of subtle hilarity and a deeply ingrained genuineness, compassion, and trustworthiness, end quote. So her family and friends were very lucky to know her. They felt very grateful to have her in their lives. Jennifer went on to study at Brown University and graduated in 1990 before... Isn't Brown... Sorry to interrupt you. Isn't Brown University kind of like Yale and Harvard? It's an Ivy League school. Crazy, yeah. Yeah. Ivy League, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. Sheesh. She graduated in 1990 before getting her master's in writing from NYU, but it was while she was studying at Brown University that she met a man named Fotis Dulos. Fotis Dulos. Yes. 
So Fotis was born in Turkey, and he grew up in Athens, Greece, before moving to the U.S. in 1986. He, too, went to Brown University where he met Jennifer, but they were just friends. They didn't start dating right away. In fact, he actually married someone else. Her name was Hillary Vanessa Aldama in the year 2000. Gosh, these people just freaking sound fancy. Yeah, they do, don't they? High flutin' people. Flu- flutant? Did uh, you just, what'd you say? High, uh, I don't know. Affluent? High, no, like, isn't it saying, like, high flutin' people? Maybe. Now I feel like a freaking idiot. I gotta Google it. Pause the show. <laughs> you Google it. I'm gonna continue. The marriage only lasted about four years, and towards the end of the marriage, he actually ran into Jennifer at an airport in Aspen, and they continued, or they, like, started talking, and kind of like rekindled things after the marriage. Well, yeah, it was, it, they started dating before the divorce was finalized, but this was like towards the very end. Highfalutin. It's all one word. High F A L U T I N. Highfalutin. Pretentious. May I see it? Yeah. I've never heard of this Doesn't word before. Highfalutin. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that word. Dang. I, I felt like an idiot for a second. You really redeemed yourself because I thought you were going for affluent. You can learn something new yeah. every day on this podcast. Man, You're I welcome. was like highfalutin. I was new. I was so confident. Okay, sorry, I thought you guys. weren't expecting you to be from Austin, but there you go. <laughs> That's a good one. Let's dive back in. She's, <laughs> she's starting to rekindle her fire with this dude. Yes. So... Anyway, 2004, the end of the marriage, it's a wild year for Fotis, okay? So try to keep up. That year, that year alone, he started a real estate development company based in Connecticut. He called it the Four Group, and this is a a company that specializes in building, like, multi-million dollar homes for, um, like, high-achieving clients, okay? So his specialty was building luxury mansions. Then that same year, he started dating Jennifer, and then he divorced his first wife, Hillary, on July 12th, but married Jennifer one month later on August 28th. So they had some things going on pretty early on, probably. Yeah, and who knows how long they were separated. Or what the condition was, right? Right. I mean, you never know. I, I would assume, or I would, I shouldn't say assume, I would hope that, you know, they were separated and the marriage was obviously over, but you just never know. You just never know. So Jennifer and Fotis moved to Farmington, Connecticut, and they had five children together. They had two sets of twins, and then they had a daughter. So all within the span of four years. And all of their kids were named after Greek Orthodox saints. Their names are Petros, Theodore, I might be mispronouncing that, Petros, but Petros, Theodore, Constantine, Christian, and Cleopatra, Noel. Oh my gosh, these people are so classy, it's not even funny. (laughs) I mean, like, seriously. So, it's worth noting that from all outward appearances, Jennifer and Fotis were living the dream. They were both incredibly attractive people. They were both Ivy League graduates living in a stunning six-bedroom, 13,000-square-foot home. And of course, I'll put pictures of the home on our Instagram, Mama.Mystery, so you can see for yourself, but... This family was like the picture of stereotypical success and luxury. Highfalutin. They were highfalutin and tootin. They were highfalutin and tootin people. (laughs) We're just down here in the redneck land. (laughs) We out here in the Midwest. Yeah. 
So anyway, while Fotis worked hard to build his company, Jennifer stayed at home raising the kids, but on the side, she was writing for Patch.com, and she wrote her own blog. Um, it, called, it was called Five Makes Seven, but the, I tried to look it up, and it no longer exists. Five Makes Seven? Mm-hmm. What is the meaning of that? Five kids makes seven total for the family. Okay. Math. It's just math. So she managed this in the midst of a wide variety of activities for her kids, including but not limited to, okay? These are all the activities that their kids were involved in. Can you even imagine this? Ballet. Tennis. One was playing tennis, had to be. Of course, tennis. Ballet, art class, music, Lego club. There's a Lego club? Who knew? Swimming, soccer, tennis, ice skating, hockey, horseback riding, snow skiing, and competitive water skiing. Oh, my gosh. Every rich person sport in the world. (laughs) Everyone in the book. They were signed up. Sheesh. So by the time they were six, the two oldest boys were ranked nationally in their age group for water skiing. And somehow while juggling all of her kids' activities, she was able to continue working on this blog and also on a book of her own. These people are badass. Yeah. I Real mean, like, badass. Like stop. ballers. Mm-hmm. Props to them. Look at them building life. 13,000 yeah. square foot in the Hamptons, balling out of control. Yeah. Sheesh. So while Jennifer managed the home, family, and her own work life, Fotis was gone on average 10 days a month traveling, but not for work. Jennifer said, quote, he travels for water ski competitions. He travels to snow ski. He travels for his own pleasure. He goes back to Greece to see his friends and for pleasure, not for work, end quote. So it was also, it's, it's also worth noting, and I don't have this in here. I'm just adding this as a side note, but... Fotis was incredibly competitive. I mean, you can tell his kids are in all of these different activities, but water skiing seemed to be the most important one. And there was a pond nearby their home. I mean, I guess you could call it more of like a small lake, but they would spend any free time if they had any at all. It would be on this lake practicing skiing. And it got to a point where the two older boys were growing tired of it. And there were plenty of times when they were like, I don't want to do this. And Fotis would just throw, he would be like outraged. He was known to have thrown a ski at a big rock and get into the mom's face, berating her about like why they need to be practicing and training. And they had coaches. I mean, it was just like, he was a very, I don't know how, like, how would you describe that type of person? I say this carefully because I'm not like saying, oh yeah, it's okay that he was berating his wife and in her face. Right. Mm -hmm. So I say that this carefully. But, I mean, it sounds like the dude was a winner in life. For like, sure. He was a high achiever. He didn't settle. And so, yeah, you have that big of a competitive nature and you're a winner. He was winning. Yeah. And he wanted to win. Yeah. At all costs. You know, if this story didn't turn out the way it did, he would probably be comparable to, like, Tom Brady. Because, the Tom Brady of water skiing or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To ha- have like this very successful career on his own. His wife is very successful and he's going to make sure his kids are successful too. And they know what it's like to win. Yeah. So like I don't, and, and I'm a ambitious and, and competitive person. So my personality, I don't really knock him, but I mean, I can see that some people would. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think at this age, I mean, they're only six. 
The kids are six. Teaching them to be winners. Again, I said like I yeah. like I can see why some people would say that's stupid, Austin. You're nuts. He's a jerk. And I can I but I I don't know. I can see the other side of it too. Yeah, and I can too. I'm not saying that you know one is worse than the other. It's just to each their own, I guess. Yep. So naturally, though, the pair began drifting further and further apart. And we see this often in marriages. And I feel like this is a common demise in relationships when couples lose focus on one another because they're distracted by other things in their lives. So especially with high achieving couples who have their own things going on and then they have these high achieving kids, too. It's just it's easy to lose sight and stop dating each other. Right. Mm hmm. And it's worth noting, too, that Jennifer may not have had a direct hand in Fotis's businesses, um, but Jennifer's dad had loaned Fotis millions of dollars over the years for mortgages and land acquisitions, which enabled Fotis to grow his company faster since he wasn't faced with, you know, the typical roadblocks of having to finance through your typical banks, Mm -hmm. which would require a lot more work and hoops to jump through, essentially. And credibility on his behalf, Mm because say he was trying to take out a loan for X number of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, if he didn't have the credibility on his own end, literally credit, but also the credit history, the large loan history, he wouldn't be able to do things. Yeah. So So it did kind of seem like Fotis, you know, started this company building these high-end homes, but I don't know that he ever spent much time building lower-end type of homes. I think he kind of dove right in and had the support of Jennifer's family. I mean, Mm -hmm. Jennifer was a trust fund kid and was came from a lot, a lot of money. And so I think he definitely benefited from that. But then Jennifer's dad, Hilliard, passed away in January of 2017, which effectively ended the flow of funds that Fotis became so so accustomed to. And when Hilliard died, Fotis's repayments stopped as well, leaving him more than $2.5 million in debt to Jennifer's family. So turbulence in the marriage became even more apparent when Jennifer took to her blog to say, quote, I wish I were a strong person and that confrontation did not both scare and appall me, end quote. And in March of the same year, just two months after the death of her father, Jennifer found out that Fotis had been having an affair with an Argentinian businesswoman named Michelle Traconis. So according to Heavy.com, Michelle Traconis is Venezuelan, but before moving to Connecticut to be closer to Fotis, she lived in Miami, where a lot of her family still lives. And among... So she moved there knowing she was a side piece. Uh Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it gets crazy, Austin. Just wait. I don't... Just wait. So among home wrecking, her activities include skiing, horseback riding, and traveling the world, staying at luxury resorts. And Michelle, who also goes by the name of Michi, so cute. She's one of those cool girls, Michi. <laughs> Listen to Kelly getting that getting that attitude because she finds out she's a home wrecker. So all of a sudden she's like, Michi. Uh, listen, I know enough to be able to say that, to have an opinion of this Well, person. tell us what it is then. And I will. And I'll get there. (laughs) I got like five pages to go. (laughs) So Michi has worked in public relations, marketing, event coordination, and even worked as a TV host for a show on ESPN called Snowtime, interviewing like champion snow skiers and people involved in that whole arena. So anyway, 
Jennifer, who was devastated by this, gets all of her ducks in a row and gets her own place renting in New Canaan, Connecticut, which is about 70 miles away from Farmington, where they were living. And she plans on moving herself and the children there and files for divorce in June. So during the divorce proceedings, Jennifer testified that after she discovered Fotis's affair with Michelle, who was living in Miami at the time, Fotis told Jennifer that he was going to move Michelle and her 12-year-old daughter into their home while Jennifer was still living there. That's crazy. He was going to move the side chick and her kid into the home while the wife is still there. Yeah, that's a problem. That's a big problem. That's a problem. A live, a live-in mistress. Yeah, I mean, I guess she's not a mistress anymore. Like, yeah, this is just weird. It's bizarre. Like, did he ever expect her to actually be okay with that? Man, that that would have been an interesting conversation to be in the room for. Yeah, she said in a court filing, "quote My husband informed me that he decided to move Michelle and her daughter into the marital home and enroll her daughter in the private school that our children attended for the last two years." He informed me that our children and I will continue to reside in the marital home every weekend during the summer so that we all, Michelle and her daughter included, would be together. Essentially, he expects to exhibit complete control over me and the children, end quote. Oh, man. Uh, Yeah. I mean, this is bonkers. What are the lessons you're teaching your kids too? Like mm-hmm. reminds me of the beginning of that. We always reference this movie. I feel like the Amy Schumer movie where, where the dad's sitting there and he goes, monogamy doesn't, is not, is, is not realistic. Repeat after me. And he's yeah. talking to his daughters <laughs> and he's like, wreck. yeah, he's monogamy is not say you have this doll, right? And you want to play with another doll. Sorry, that's off track, but that's, <laughs> and she's got another flight attendant doll. And maybe, maybe you want to play one with that one, right? A the best friend doll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Right. Anyway, sorry. So he's moving moving his side piece in with his with her daughter. Yeah. With her with his wife, with his kids. Yeah. He expects them to just all live happily ever after under the Let's same all roof. just coexist. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Just Where's wow. she gonna sleep? I don't no, know. No, I know, just like something to think about. Like we all <laughs> and, and by the way. We're also, she's going to be sleeping in bed with us. Yeah. And then she's going to make dinner on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We're going to make. You're going to make dinner Tuesday, Thursday, Listen to Saturday. me. And we're going to make a photo. We're all going to go out to Chili's. Yeah. And some Chili's. And, we're, and on Sunday nights, we're going to have a photo sandwich in bed. Oh my God. Gross. So anyway, Jennifer also went on to say, quote, I am afraid of my husband. He is dangerous and ruthless when he believes that he has been wronged. During the course of our marriage, he told me about sickening revenge fantasies and plans to cause physical harm to others who have wronged him, end quote. So very foreshadowing. I think she knew what she was getting herself into. She knew that um, filing for divorce was probably not going to end well, and she was right. So Fotis argued that Jennifer was mentally unstable and was on medications for this, which is such a cop-out. If I found out that my husband was cheating on me and tried to move his mistress and her kid into my home while I was still there, I would need medication too. I would need... I would need a lot more than medication, actually. Let's hope he wouldn't do that, you know? Let's hope he wouldn't. Because his wife is the host of a crime podcast. (laughs) And he's the sidekick. (laughs) 
Man, people are going to listen to this episode, and if they don't like us, they're going to be like, These, this couple talks way too much. <laughs> so anyway. But most people are going to think we have personality and that we're not boring. I, I would hope so. So anyway, that <laughs> simply wasn't even the case with Jennifer. She was widely known as being a very involved and doting mother. So Fotis's character assassination was really just a pathetic reach, and I think that was really obvious to everybody. So in March of 2018, Jennifer was given sole physical custody of the children while the couple shared joint legal custody. Fotis was allowed supervised visit and monitored phone calls with the children because he and his children could speak Greek to one another. And he didn't, or the, um, the judge didn't want him relaying any kind of secretive me- messages that, like, a listener wouldn't be able to translate, right? Because all of his phone calls were monitored. Mm-hmm. So it was very apparent that he was a controlling narcissist who at times would encourage his kids to lie about, you know, the kids being around Michelle and her kid because, like, that wasn't allowed. And so the judge was really on to him. Um, he was found to have broken numerous court orders during the process of their custody battle. And at one point, they did share physical custody. But now that Jennifer was the sole, you know, she had sole physical custody, you can imagine how much that irritated a power-hungry Fotis, right? I was just going to say, this kind of tale, of tale as old as time, this guy who has all this success and power now breaking all the rules because he thinks he can just mole over everything Mm -hmm. which i feel though like often we see these people who have a lot of money get away with this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but in his case his money was not i mean jennifer had a lot of money too she she had a really hefty trust fund so it's not like she's over here like struggling Mm -hmm. um struggling financially anyway but in her application for full custody jennifer wrote a chilling premonition She said, I am afraid of my husband. I know that this filing will enrage him. I know he will retaliate by trying to harm me in some way. He has the attitude that he must always win at all costs, end quote. I said earlier, winner. Yeah, but at what cost? Right, right. So on the morning of May 24th, 2019, it's the Friday before Memorial Day weekend, and Jennifer dropped her kids off at the New Canaan Country School. She made it home and was last seen on a neighbor's security camera pulling into her garage at 8.05 a.m. Her kids had orthodontist appointments later that, after, later that afternoon at 4 o'clock in New York City. And Jennifer's nanny, Lauren, was the one that picked them up and took them to their appointment. And Jennifer was supposed to meet them there, but she never showed up. She also had two doctor's appointments earlier that day scheduled for 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. that she didn't show up for either. So when the police searched Jennifer's home that evening, because her family, of course, called and reported her missing by about 7 o'clock that evening... When police searched her home, they were able to find evidence of a physical assault in the garage. There was evidence of blood splatter in the garage and evidence that someone tried to clean it up. Lauren, the nanny, was also there and informed police that she had stopped by the house earlier that day and was surprised to see Jennifer's Range Rover in the garage because Jennifer mentioned that she was going to take the Range to New York City rather than the Suburban. So the Suburban, however, was gone at this point, and Jennifer's pocketbook was still inside the house. So it's all getting really weird. You know, you see the Suburban pulling in. 
you would assume it's there, but it's not there. The range is still there. I mean, it's, it's just all getting really fishy. Blood splatter evidence in the garage also led into the kitchen. On the kitchen faucet was blood that had mixed DNA, and when it was tested, it eventually came back positive for Jennifer's DNA and Fotis's DNA. Fotis's DNA was also found on the doorknob from the mudroom. And here's the thing. Fotis was not allowed in the house. When it came to exchanging the kids or having anything to do with the kids, he never came in the house. So the fact that he's in the house is alarming. It's a problem. The same security footage that captured Jennifer arriving home around 8.05 that morning also captured the Suburban leaving around 10.25 that morning. And that same evening, around 7.30 p.m., Fotis and Michelle Traconis were captured on various video surveillance throughout the city, dumping garbage bags in 30, at least 30, various trash receptacles in Hartford. 30 spots? Yeah, including throwing a white FedEx box into a storm drain. Man, 30. Think about, think about 30. Like, if you're listening right now. I just think it's interesting. Try to think of 30 dumpster locations. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing, Austin. They drove around and they would stop like, you know how, you know, in front of Starbucks, you there's just, a trash can. Right. They would stop and just throw a bag of trash into the trash can. I mean, it was literally that simple. It wasn't all big dumpster, okay. dumpsters. It was also like those small ones. Interesting. So police tried to obtain all the trash and they did manage to capture, I think, most of the bags. These bags contained various pieces of bloody clothing, like one of Jennifer's um, Vineyard Vines t-shirts that she frequently wore, a bloody bra that belonged to Jennifer, and some blood-soaked sponges and paper towels. Clearly, somebody was trying to clean up a crime scene, put it in the bag, and dispose of the bag. So according to an article on the Hartford Current, in one bag was, quote, a black garden glove with Fotis's DNA on the interior of the glove, a black husky glove with Jennifer's blood on the outside of it, zip ties with Jennifer's DNA, and at least one garbage bag with the DNA of Fotis, Jennifer, and Michelle Traconis. Footage also captured Fotis and Michelle dropping off a large black floor mat to a vehicle by the side of what appeared to be like a rundown business. Like you could see... So all of these security cameras were all throughout the city, and they, I, I have Props? never heard of a case like say, this. This is nuts. Yeah, I've never heard of a case where they were able to gather so much from all over the city, but they they saw him stop and unload some trash into one of those like little side trash cans, and then he pulled out a black floor mat that belonged to it. It was a similar weather tech mat um, that belonged to Jennifer's suburban. And it was like for the very, very back, you know, like the big, Mm -hmm. large square one. Anyway, he pulls it out of the back of his truck and sets it along, like sets it against the building of this like rundown business. I mean, you can tell he's just like spreading trash all over. Right. So there was also an emblem, or what I understand, it was either the bike or the emblem to the bike of a French brand of bicycle found in one of the trash bags or among the trash. And police were also able to pull the box out of the storm drain. And this FedEx box box contained two altered license plates that were once registered to FOTUS. But you could tell that he tried to change a J on the license plate to a U. So he had tampered with the license plate, put it in the FedEx box, and then tried to just throw them away. 
So at 8.10 that night, police did find Jennifer's Suburban in Waveney Park, which was just three miles from Jennifer's home. It was backed up against a tree, left in reverse, and there was blood-like substance found on the passenger side of the vehicle. Left in reverse. Left in reverse. And it was backed up against a tree. Weird. So Fotis, of course he comes up with this alibi, right? So he comes in to answer police's questions like about the disappearance. He's coming into the police department to ask if there's any updates of the case. And they ask him for his phone. So they end up taking his phone. And they he saw... Ask, he didn't ask for a lawyer? Not at this point. I mean, maybe he did, but at this point, he's he was cooperating until they took his phone. And then once he realized that they weren't going to give his phone back right away, um, he got really agitated. Mm-hmm. And the, the interesting thing, I didn't know this, but as soon as you go into a police department and you give over your phone, if they're taking your phone as evidence, they put it in airplane mode. They That's the first thing they do after they unlock it. They put it in airplane mode so that there's no remote access to like delete any of the data on the phone. I didn't know that, but I, I thought that was I didn't know that cool. either. That's interesting. Yeah. So anyway, um, in the afternoon, he says that he was at a development property for about two hours before returning back home. His phone had was, was recorded as being at home. Like they traced it. His phone was at home that entire morning until the afternoon when he was at that development property for about two hours. And then that evening, his phone was traced all over the city where he had been dumping all those trash bags. So it's obvious to me that he probably left his phone at home so that he wouldn't be traced while he was in New Canaan, but made the mistake of not leaving it at home while he dumped trash all over the city. However, neighbors remember seeing a red Toyota Tacoma pickup truck on Jennifer's property the morning that Jennifer disappeared. So this Toyota Tacoma was registered to one of Fotis's employees, and his name I've heard pronounced two different ways, either Powell or Pavel. Um, anyway, his name, I'm going to call him Pavel because that's how I've heard it pronounced multiple times. Pavel Gimieni told police that he had left his truck at Fotis's house, and when he, went to, when, when he went back to get it on the 24th, it was not there. So I mentioned earlier that Fotis has this four group, you know, his construction company, essentially. Mm-hmm. This is based out of his home. So the fact that it's at his home is not odd. You know, if it was one of his employees, it's because his whole office was, like, in a separate wing of the house. Right. So once again, these security cameras track almost every movement of this uh, Toyota Tacoma truck. Police are able to track the Toyota Tacoma leaving Fotis's home at 4.20 a.m. on the 24th. At 5.22, it's pictured in New Canaan, and a school bus even has a shot of it parked outside Waveney Park at 7.40 a.m., not far from where Jennifer Suburban was eventually found. Pavel tells police that a few days later, Fotis was adamant that he removed the seats from his truck. So he does. He gets the seats replaced, but he keeps the originals. And he gives those seats to the police, and the police test him and find Jennifer's blood on the seats. So police believe that Fotis drove this Tacoma to New Canaan, 
parked it at Waveney, then rode his bike to Jennifer's home three miles away, waited for her to come home, assaulted Jennifer in the garage, and then drove her body and the evidence away in the suburban, and then parked it at Waveney, transferred it all to the Tacoma, and went back to Farmington in the Tacoma. And that's why he wanted him to change the seats. But once police were notified of those positive DNA results on June 1st, they finally had enough probable cause to arrest Michelle Traconis and Fotis Dulos and charge them both with tampering with evidence and hindering prosecution. They both plead not guilty, and their bond was set at $500,000. And I thought this was interesting, but Michelle bonded out right away because Michelle comes from money herself. So she said, hey, get a bondsman, send 50 grand over, let's get on out of here. But Fotis had trouble coming up with the cash right away. 50 grand. I know, but, but you yeah, would I think mean, someone would think, who yeah. has this 13,000 square foot home probably has buckets of cash right. sitting around. But That's obviously he was struggling. So anyway, he did eventually bond out, though. And um, however, because of the charges against him, he was not allowed to have any contact whatsoever with his children. So I think at this point, you can see the walls kind of just slowly closing in on Fotis. Fotis maintained his innocence, of course, even suggesting the absurd theory that this was a case similar to Gone Girl, which is a movie we've referenced multiple Multiple times. times, It's a good movie. You should watch it. But... Jennifer was an avid writer. She was very creative, and she wrote a novel 13 years prior to this whole event. And Fotis's attorney alleged that this had a similar storyline to Gone Girl. So they really hung on to that, thinking that maybe she was acting out the plot of Gone Girl. But family and friends knew better that she would never leave her kids high and dry like that. And one close friend, Carrie Luft, read the novel and said that this claim was false and irresponsible. So Carrie has been Jennifer's spokesperson ever since she went missing to make sure that Jennifer had a voice through all of this. And in an interview with People Magazine, she said, quote, I read Jennifer's novel in installments as she was completing the manuscript, and she finished the draft around 2002, which was before she started dating Fotis. Her book has nothing to do with Gone Girl, which was published 10 years later. And the novel is not a mystery. It's a character-driven story that follows a young woman through relationships and self-discovery over a period of years. She goes on to point out that it is absurd to tie her appearance to tie her disappearance to a book she wrote 17 years ago when there is physical evidence of a violent assault that took place. So that just nips the butt in that. Throw it out. Yeah. So once Fotis and Michelle were under arrest, police interviewed Michelle to see if they could get her version of events from that day. At this point, of course, Fotis is completely not cooperating anymore. So they hoped that Michelle might offer some help. They asked her about these handwritten notes that they had found in Fotis' home in Farmington. So they interviewed her the first day. Then they had that search warrant. They went through the Farmington home and found these handwritten notes. So they come back to her and they're like, hey, we found these handwritten notes that they themselves, as in the investigators, titled the alibi script. And one was written by Michelle, one was written by Fotis, and on these notes were an outline of the activities of Michelle and Fotis on May 24th, the day that Jennifer went missing, and the following day, all laid out in very specific hourly increments. So 
Michelle claims that the reason they wrote these, quote, alibi scripts was because Fotis's lawyer instructed him to. But when she was faced with the events of these alibi scripts, her story began to change. And over the course of three separate interviews, Michelle's story continued to change. So her first version of her story was that she was home with Fotis on the morning of Jennifer's disappearance. She detailed the two of them waking up, having some shower sex, and then taking her daughter to school. So she's like placing Fotis there at the home. She's like, he was definitely there. I had sex with him. Like, Mm -hmm. he was definitely there, right? But then when she was pressed about Fotis actually being there or not, her story changed because they were starting to give evidence that his DNA was found at Jennifer's house. So, like, we don't think he was there. And she starts saying, well, maybe, maybe he wasn't there. Like, how maybe do you, he, how do you misremember having sex? Like maybe he was there or maybe I was just imagining it. I don't know. What the heck? She also admitted that Fotis left his phone at home that morning and that she saw his cell phone on his work desk, but that she did not see Fotis. She was unwilling to say definitively that he was not there, only that she never saw him until around 1 p.m. And another thing she noted was that Kent... Uh, Mawini, I think is his last name, which is uh, an attorney and friend to Fotis, was also there that day. And Kent, who was in like the four group office, okay, was there that morning, acknowledged saying hi to Michelle. Michelle acknowledged saying hi to him. And then eventually Fotis's phone rang and Kent instructed Michelle to answer it. And so I wonder if this was because they knew that having a phone call come in on Fotis's phone right. and then get answered would show up on his phone records and indicate like, oh yeah, Fotis was here the whole time. His phone was here. He answered a call. Mm-hmm. But Michelle stated that when she answered the phone, it was one of his Greek friends who was speaking in Greek and she couldn't understand him and it was only a 17 second phone call. And that was on the records and she admitted that she was the one that answered it. But again it kind of throws a wrench in his alibi. And now it also implicates Kent for lying because Kent eventually told police, no, I was with him that day. And obviously that's not true. So in September of 2019, Michelle and Fotis were arrested again on more tampering with evidence charges as more evidence like this started coming to light. And hold on, the lady's still missing. Still missing. And they both pleaded not guilty once again. But then finally, on January 7th of 2020, Fotis was taken into custody and charged with capital murder and kidnapping. Michelle was also arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder for her involvement. And then Kent Mawini, which was the attorney and friend of Fotis, was also charged with conspiracy to commit murder for his active role in lying about Fotis's alibi. Then on January 28th, after Fotis failed to show up for his emergency bail hearing, officers went to his house to perform a well check, and they found him in his garage. So he's sitting in his car. I'm going nuts right now because I want to know how he got charged with murder. Like, where did they find her and everything? Okay. So real quick, I'll address that. Yeah, we skipped over that. That seems like a big deal. They never found her. They never found her? No. The reason that he was able to be charged was because a medical examiner determined that the blood evidence proved she sustained a fatal injury. So sometimes you can declare somebody dead if there's enough blood loss to prove nobody could survive a fatal wound like that. There was that much blood? Mm Mm-hmm. 
So what made them just out of nowhere in January decide, yeah. I think it was the completion of all the evidence, going through forensics and getting tested for DNA. I mean, so she's these never been take found. time. She, to this day, Austin, has not been found. Holy smokes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so go ahead. You said now he's found in his car. Yeah, he so dead. now he's in his garage trying filled, to kill himself. Filled his exhaust pipe with a potato and closed his garage. I mean, I don't know about the potato, but he's sitting in his garage in his car. They, the police, you know, see that he's sitting in his car in the garage. So they go into the garage. They find him unresponsive. They pull him out of the car and out of the garage to perform CPR. And amazingly, this is all being broadcast on live television because there's like a helicopter up above recording the entire thing. So you can literally see the EMTs performing CPR on Fotis in his driveway. And miraculously, they were able to get a pulse so he was then lifelighted to a New York City hospital, but he ultimately died from carbon monoxide poisoning two days later. He did leave a handwritten note proclaiming his Michelle's and Kent's innocence. Oh my gosh, of And in part, he said, quote, I refuse to spend even an hour more in jail for something I had nothing to do with, end quote. <sighs> So, because Fotis is now dead, the murder charges against him had to be dropped. And I want to note that he was not acquitted of these charges. It just had to be recognized that a prosecution of Fotis was not, was not possible now because he's dead. And so his attorney, however, continued to fight for him, though, claiming that someone else murdered Jennifer and dumped a pile of bloody clothing on his front porch. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and that he these, just had to get rid of it. Like these criminals have the dumbest things to say. And not only the why criminals, would he? But this dumbass, long-haired attorney who like was so arrogant in all of his his interviews. I it was disgusting to watch him because he was so arrogant. I mean, it was like a perfect fit for Fotis to have this lawyer. Ooh. But, like, what a reach to be like, actually, he was framed and somebody else did it and dumped her clothes on his porch, so he had no choice. Why ever even kill her? Like, here's the deal. It never makes sense to kill somebody. But I'm just saying, like, these are wealthy people that have done well, live whatever life they want. Let her go live her life. You live your life and move on. Mm -hmm. Like, there was not... I'm not saying there's ever any motive justified to kill somebody. But, like, I don't even, like... But this was so nonsensical. It literally came down to winning. That's what it comes Gosh. down to, Austin. He did not want to lose. And to him, losing was not having 100% physical custody, custody of his kids and having to pay her any money, if at all, if he did, or not having access to her fortune anymore. I mean, those his motives were greed. financial and control. Greed. Yeah. And greed, yeah. That's, those were his motives. So... As for Michelle and Kent, they remain charged, but of course, COVID has now placed a pause on a lot of cases we've seen. And Michelle is due in court on August 6th. Until then, she is under house arrest. And it should be noted that her and her daughter have since moved out of the Farmington home. And she continues to maintain that she still has no idea what happened to Jennifer or where she is. However, she did recently say, quote, to those who are quick to judge people they do not know, let me say this. It is possible to misjudge others. Whether or not Fotis Dulos was capable of doing the things the police and prosecutors accused him of doing, I do not know. But based on what I have learned in the last year, I think it was a mistake to have trusted him. End quote. 
which I think is like, it's, it's if you have any conscience, like she has five living kids, surviving kids that now have to deal with the loss of their mom and now the loss of their dad too. But the least you could do, you have a daughter. Like I am saying this as if I'm speaking to Michelle, you have a daughter. Is this the kind of result and closure you would want for your daughter? If somebody took your life, that's crazy. It's just crazy. It's crazy. Like I, I, I can't get over whenever there's like no, like you have no reasoning. Your no DNA, your DNA was found in their place. I have I, no, don't know. Don't I know, don't know how. what happened to her. You know she's gone. Yeah. You know. In photos to say, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I. I didn't. I'm not going to spend another day for something I didn't do. Like, how do you explain all the DNA and everything? Mm-hmm. You know, and that was the other thing that I found really annoying was that his attorney in the beginning was like, oh, you know, the police say that he made 30 stops along the city. I mean, that would be like him stopping at every red light. Like he was equating it to that as if it was being over exaggerated. And then when it came to the DNA found in the home, he was like, well, we're talking about like microscopic DNA, like as if that was being over exaggerated too. But his fingerprints were found on the trash bags, his DNA was found on items inside the trash bags. Like, explain that. Oh, now you're going to explain inside it by saying, yeah, now you're going to explain it by saying, well, it was dumped on his property. Like, dude, whatever. This is what makes me so sick about defense attorneys sometimes. Like, how do you sleep? Man, I think defense attorneys would be, a, yeah, how, sorry, I'm interrupt you, but I agree. How do you sleep? Yeah. How do you sleep at night? And I always wonder, I don't know if you ever thought about this. Do people tell their defense attorney, like, you know how you're supposed to, you're supposed to tell your attorney the truth. Mm-hmm. Do people who killed somebody, do they tell their defense attorney, hey man, I did not do it. We need to get me out of this. Or do they say, listen, I did it and I'm paying you damn good money. Get me out of it. I wonder because I, there's a, that. so there is a clause like, um, they can't say anything. The attorney. Yeah. The attorney cannot say anything as long as their client is alive at least. So take like a Casey Anthony. Yeah. Exactly. Did she tell her defense attorney, listen, I did do it. And you're going to, you're going to make sure I get out of this. So that way she can say, okay, well I need to know the facts so I can make the story make sense. That's the only way. Like, yeah, I, I, I think they would be told. I've thought about that a ton of times too. I've thought, how did Jose Baez, which is Casey Anthony's attorney, how did he sleep at night? He knows. He knows. But he was, she had something he was to do getting, with it. B- b- he was getting. He was getting BJ's as payment. BJ's and, and money and. I mean anything. But he for still the BJ. knew. How did he sleep at night? I don't know. It's I don't know. Insane. These guys are just built different. That's that's all it comes down to in my head is they're just built different. I can't relate. That's insane. Can't relate. Well, Damn good episode. Good job. This was a good one. Thank you. Um, you had so, a lot of research in this one. Thank you. I actually read, there was like a 35-page affidavit um, on t- uh, Michelle Traconis's um, arrest, and I read a lot of it. And I mean, there's like 400 pages. I can't wait to see the pictures. I mean, I'm pictures. not going to read that stuff. But. Yeah. I can't wait to see the pictures of the houses and of the people. Oh, yeah. I'll show you. So um, I'll just look it up right now, because I actually want to get your take on... Um, these people were high. Just how beautiful. These people were highfalutin. Michelle, uh, I'm sorry, not Michelle. How beautiful Jennifer Dulos is, and how villainous Michelle Traconis looks. So, um, let me see if I can find a picture of her. Because I was thinking to myself, like, gosh, what a huge step down. So, um, the, here's a side by side. On the left is Jennifer Dulos, and on the right is Michelle Traconis. I mean, we're talking about a big step down. You went from someone who is a classic 
beauty, like cover girl beauty to someone who looks like the major villain in many Disney movies. Very hard, sharp features. That's pretty wild. She is kind of scary looking. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting. I would at least hope, you know, that you're like leveling up, but you definitely didn't, dude. Dang. Well, good job. Thank you very much. Highfalutin people. The guy who knew nothing about nothing knows the word highfalutin. (laughs) (laughs) Take that, Griffin, if you're still listening. Griffin's like, dude, I stopped listening forever. No, he's one of our patrons. He's the one that left left that review. Shout out, Griffin. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see you next week. Mama. Mystery. Out.